gets a lot of publicity. It gets a lot of books. It gets a lot of attention. Some of it is uh, attention worth having, and some of it is, is a abuse of the Scripture. And in the next few weeks, and I, don't, I, I honestly, I don't know how fast we will cover this passage. It stretches from Ephesians 5, verse 22, through uh, Ephesians 6, verse 9. It's, it in some ways is the heart of the practical outliving of the gospel, the gospel he has preached to us, Paul has preached to us in the first three chapters. This is the heart of living a practical life before God in keeping with the gospel. And the heart of that is the family. And, and uh, so I don't, and I don't know how fast we will cover it. We will be very thorough. Hopefully we will be keeping the scripture in our minds, and obeying the Scripture even as we hear it preached, submitting to it, there are going to be points at which you will want to leave the room. It will get so uncomfortable. I confess it up front. It's uncomfortable for me. Okay? But hang in there. We, we need to hear this. We need to hear it not just from an opinion, but from the meat and the truth of God's Word. Because there is no institution on the face of the earth that is under more attack than the family. And it is not a new strategy. It is an old strategy from the garden. The family is under attack. The enemy understands that the core of God's creation, the center of his creation, is mankind in the form of man and woman in the union of one flesh, the marriage. It is the center of God's creative act. I know we're, we're not the people who champion the greatness of mankind at Grace Fellowship. We, we often spend weeks and months saying nothing positive about the human race. And I, I don't apologize for that because I, as, a, as a guy, I heard a guy say one time, I balance the rest of the voices you listen to all day, every day. I don't try to be balanced from the pulpit. You hear a lot about the goodness of mankind all the time. So when you come in here, you don't hear a lot of the goodness of mankind, okay? You, because out there, you're hearing nothing of the evil, the real evil of mankind that resides in our hearts. So we can go weeks here without any positive statements, but never under, underestimate this. When God created His universe... At the center, at the heart of his creation was mankind in the form of man and woman and in the union of a marriage. It is the core and the essence of a society, marriage is. It cannot be overestimated. It cannot be overanalyzed, uh, the relationship between a man and a woman and then from that relationship, children. It cannot be overestimated. It cannot be overanalyzed. But I will tell you this. It is easily mistaken. It's easily mistaken. If you're, in, if you're in a marriage right now that's on the rocks, if you're in a marriage right now that you think isn't on the rocks, we need these sermons. We need this passage. Because trust me, it's not a matter of when you will hit a rough spot in your marriage. If you will hit it, a rough spot in your marriage. You will. You will. Okay? 
And so we're going to spend some time here. But before we launch off into the specifics of the roles of the marriage over the next few weeks, I backed up this week in, in studying and thought about the passage we have just completed it's specifically from verse 18 to verse 21. That passage centers around this. Be filled with the Spirit in verse 18. The second part of verse 18 is the center of the focus of Paul in the passage, verses 18 through 21. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? Well, he then comes down and says... What it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, one thing that it means is that we encourage one another with the truth of God's Word. We encourage one another with the truth of God's Word through biblical instruction, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to one another, and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the first thing we see is that there is biblical instruction to be had in this relationship of uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's not unlike what he says in his longer passage in Colossians chapter 3 where he tells us to put off the old man and to put on the new man. And, and in that putting on the new man, he says in verse 16, Colossians 3, verse 16, let the word of God dwell in you richly or fully, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our heart toward God. So we know the purpose of the singing is instruction. It's not just singing. It's, it's instructive singing. It's, it's the rebuke of a friend. It's the, it's the encouragement and the admonishment of a friend who comes and says, this is what the Bible says and this is what our lives look like. Let us submit to God and His Word right now together in repentance of our failure and our sin. And from that meeting of confession and repentance, comes singing of the hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. Two friends coming together, whether it be one or two friends or a group of friends or a church like this that falls on their face. That's what Paul's talking about. Falls on their face before God and says, we have failed in this regard, Lord. Now forgive us our sins as we forgive one another because we have failed against one another. And now when we rise from that prone position, it is with a heart filled with psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs. Not bitterness towards someone else who dares to call us out on our sin. Not hatred towards another because they dare tell us we don't meet the mark of Christ in this way or that way. Not pettiness, but real humility that says, you know what, I am a sinner and I do need you. And, and, I, pray, and I praise God for you. Instructing one another. That's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If, and I may say this. If you can't take instruction, you are not filled with the Spirit. It's that simple. You know why your children struggle to get instruction? 
Well, it may very well be that they're not Christians. And they're not filled with the Spirit. Therefore, they're not teachable. They are not, being, they are not disciples yet. You know why you struggle with it? It may be that you're not filled with the Spirit of God. What it means to be filled with the Spirit of God is not some mystical, ooey, gooey emotionalism. It is right here. Encouraging one another with biblical instruction. Secondly, in this passage, verses 18 through 21, it's praising God through joy-filled singing. Praising God through joy-filled singing. I said it when we talked through this passage, but it's just in review to say, if you don't have a song in your heart, it is a sign of being separated from Christ. If there's no joy in your walk with Him, you may not be walking with Him. You may not be walking with Him. And, and I use as an example our children. Because I don't know about you, but I got four around the house, and even the youngest one, the 15-month-old in my home, breaks out in song every now and then. Granted, it's Barney most of the time. Okay? She breaks out in Barney. But, but it's just a simple fact that children love to sing. Is it not? They're simple in that way. And when they get happy or excited, it just kind of comes out of them. And how many times have we in our hearts, when our children started doing that, gotten mad? Be honest. Frustrated. Shooed them to be quiet. Paul's not, Paul's not interested in that. He's saying, your home and your business and your business around town and your worship together ought to be filled with this singing of joy. It ought to be filled. Just like your children, when they get excited start singing, you ought to be singing. So being spirit-filled is taking the instruction of the Bible and secondly, singing in joy. And thirdly, thanking God from a grateful heart. That's what he says. Making melody to the Lord with your heart. Why? So that we might give thanks always and for everything to God the Father. Yes. Diagnoses of cancer, failed businesses, marriages that are struggling are to be thanked before God. For his goodness towards us. We're to thank him for that. It doesn't mean we, we somehow are, are some kind of people that love pain. But rather we love Christ. And we know there is no coming to Christ without suffering. There's no getting close to Christ in an intimate way without suffering. However it is. Whether it be physical or in marriage or in your parental relationships or your business there's no coming to Christ without suffering. Paul said, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven without suffering. If you do not suffer, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I can say it that bluntly. Even suffer unto death. And so, we take biblical instruction. We're a people who sing with joyful hearts and we are thankful to God. It's three ways. But I want to focus today's sermon, not on all those things which we've talked about, but really digging in to submitting to one another. How we are to submit to one another. This word is hated in our culture. This word is seen as weak in our culture, in our churches. It's seen as being a pejorative term. Submit to one another. Oh, yeah. Yeah, here it comes. Preacher's fisting to get on women. Talking about submission. 
right? Men, the sermon is not for your wife. The sermon is for me and is for you. Because before Paul ever mentions the relationship of a wife to her husband, look at what he says in verse 21. Look what he says. He says nothing about men and women. He speaks to Christians in every class, in every relationship, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. In reverence of Christ, in fear. That's the, that's the better way to understand it. But the fear of the Lord of the Old Testament, Paul's bringing it out and applying it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and Paul says the beginning of wisdom applied in your life is submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. So before we get on to the roles, which we will spend a lot of time on in the coming weeks, I want to preach you a sermon that says we are to, sum, this is the title, Submitting to One Another in Christ. Submitting to One Another in Christ. And it is my argument, and I think the argument of this passage, that if we do that, the very outflow of that submitting to one another will be fulfilling the roles of marriage. There's not a woman in here who can say, I'm submitted to everybody else but my husband. And there's not a man in here who can stand before Christ and say, honestly, I'm submitted as a servant to everybody else in the world, but I'm not doing it to my wife. It's just not possible. So we need to take seriously this text in verse 21. That's where we're going to focus. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. First of all, we see that because we are filled with the Spirit, we submit to one another. I said that the text revolves around verse 18, and it does. Do not be drunk with wine. That's the negative command. Don't overdrink. Do not be a drunk. Okay? Don't be filled with wine. That's the negative. The positive is be filled with the Spirit. But the application of filled with the Spirit in summation, I told you all the things it means, but when he sums it up, when he puts it in a nutshell, it comes out this way. Submit to one another in reverence of Christ. To be filled with the Spirit is to be submitted to all others. You cannot be filled with the Spirit and be a prideful, self-centered man or woman. The only way you can be filled with the Spirit is to be in humble submission. That's it. If you want... Uh, the, the summation, that's it. We must be filled with the Spirit. That's a command we cannot pass around. But we must, that must come out, and that does come out always, that submission to others, to one another. And, it, and we understand that filling with the Spirit, in verse 18, this filling with the Spirit, if we look at that, it's an individual command, isn't it? He doesn't say anything about the church or the group or the marriage here. He says, you be filled with the Spirit. But it can't come out except in a corporate nature. That filling of the Spirit will always come out in conjunction with other believers. What does it look like to be submitted? You can't be filled with the Spirit individually and not submit to one another corporately. That's what Paul's saying. So, 
Filling with the Spirit is not, and I say it again, it is not predicated or based around some experience through the miraculous, the signs, or the speaking in tongues. I believe all those things are still active today. I believe it with all of my heart. But that is not the test to whether someone is filled with the Spirit or not. The test of being filled with the Spirit is whether they are submissive to one another in fear of Christ, not in weakness, but in honor and reverence to the Lord. Others are before me. That's what it means. And that's what I think, that's kind of, as we might say in our day, the rubber meets the road for Paul. This is where the rubber meets the road for Paul. It's in submission. He talks about submission in his letters more than he talks about justification by faith alone. You think justification by faith alone was important to Paul? Absolutely. But he spoke of submission the way we're talking about it today 32 times in his letters. 32 times. Far more than he speaks about justification by faith alone. Because for Paul, this is where the rubber meets the road. If you're not willing to be in reverence to Christ, submitting yourself to others and to all others in the church, revert back to point A, you might not be justified by faith alone. If, you're, if we, if I am so haughty and so arrogant that I think I have to be the Lord of all instead of the servant of all, I don't know the Holy Spirit, and I don't know Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying, practically. Paul's not trying to manipulate. He's being honest, straightforward, hitting us between the eyes, saying to us, do not fool or deceive yourself. You are not filled with the Spirit without submission. The roles that we're going to talk about in the marriage. The role of the wife as the submitting partner, helper, playing out the role and picturing the role for the world of the church, submitting to Christ. And the man playing out the role and the command to be like Christ in his marriage. To die, to give himself up daily for the good of his wife and his family. The fact that the role of leadership is handed to the man and that he is to now fulfill the role of leadership as a servant leader like Christ, that's not a denial of mutual submission. That's the application of submission. You see, this is what's happened, and it's, it's happening right now. You're saying, Carl, you're speaking in riddles. You're saying, submit to one another, and you're saying, be a leader. Those two things aren't the same. Yes, they are. Absolutely. If you're a man in this congregation, the way you submit, particularly to your wife, who you're called to submit to, the way you submit to her is you are a servant leader in your home. You do not take the easy road. You do not do what is fun and easy. You do not try to placate her desires and make her happy all the time. But rather... You serve her very specifically as a leader, as a true leader. And women, 
what you're being called to in a submission role in the marriage is to simply live out what all Christians are living out, and that is submission to Christ. So for you to say, well, I, I, just, I just don't, I don't really feel like, I don't really want to submit to my husband. It, it's, it's, take husband out and put Christ there. What you're really saying is, I don't want to submit to Jesus Christ. That's, that's, that's the meaning. That's, the, that's why he starts off with submit to one another in reverence to Christ. Before he launches into his talk on the marriage and the family. So submitting to one another does not undo the mutual submission being played out in roles in the marriage. Which, by the way, the roles are very different. Very different. Some of us men need to stop acting like women. And some of our women need to stop acting like men. Because in doing that, we are not submissive to one another. And we are not submitting ourselves to Christ. And therefore, we are not filled with the Spirit. Submission of the wife flows out of this passage very naturally. This mutual submission passage. So, because we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we submit to one another. And that leads us into these roles of the marriage and the family. And I might say, just to make it even more controversial, yes, fathers, we are to submit to our children. Yes, mothers, you are to submit to your little ones. And again, you say, this is, this is a riddle. You know why? Because let's all confess it right here before we go any further. You and I have a wrong view of what submission is. Most of us in here, in our hearts, really think submission is weakness. That's what we think. We think strong people don't submit to anybody. Strong people are leaders first. They're me-centered. That's the sin of our hearts, isn't it? When I say submit to your five-year-old, you say, how can I do that and be a leader? Because you've equated submission with weakness. And that's not biblical. That's not what the Bible says. And you want the test case of that? 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says that Jesus Christ submits himself to his Father. I don't know about you, but when I think of Jesus, I don't think about weakness. That's not the first word that comes to my mind when I think of the Lord. Further than that, because you say, well, yeah, he submits to his father. That's what he's supposed to do. Because children submit to their fathers. Sons submit to their dads. Philippians chapter 2, Paul gives the other side. Not only did he submit to his father, and does he submit to his father, but he submitted himself to the church. How did he do that? He stepped down from the throne of glory, not coveting equality with God, 
He set aside his Shekinah glory and his face-to-face dwelling with his father. He put on flesh. He was born of the womb of a woman. He lived a sinless and perfect life. He died on a cross. That is submission. And he submitted it not just to his father, but to the people that he would save. He submitted himself. He submitted himself by, in John 13, telling the men that he would soon die for I love you, and you're to love one another. And I love the Father, and He loves me, and you should love each other the way I love the Father. And this is how we love one another. And He took off His outer garment and wrapped Himself as a servant, and He washed their feet and said, I've loved you, now you love one another. So be careful. We need to be careful when we start throwing around terms like submission that we don't co-op the world's term for submission and make it weakness. It is not weakness. It is Christ-likeness. It is Matthew 20. I came not to lord over anyone, but to be the servant of all. I didn't come to be served, Jesus says. I came to serve. In Mark chapter 1, he said, I came to serve by living my life and dying a ransom for many. That was how Jesus came to this earth, was in submission, in humility, and in service. And so for us to scoff at and laugh at and make fun of the role of submission in your life and my life, men and women, and tell chauvinistic type stories and act like chauvinists towards our wives, it's a mockery of Jesus Christ. It's spitting in his face afresh. So before we go forward anywhere else, we need to really check our hearts, don't we? Before we get into the roles and we start nudging our partner and saying, man, I hope you're paying attention, we really need to come to grips with our own hearts here and say, I am a sinner and I do not submit to others. I have a skewed view of submission. I do not understand it. So, because we're filled with the Spirit, we submit to one another. Secondly, submission is willingly, willingly placing oneself as the servant of all. Submission is not the act of being submitted as if it comes from the outside and is forced on you. Submission is willingly laying aside your rights and your wants and your dreams and saying, I am now the servant of all. You will never hear Paul say, men, submit your wives to your leadership. Not once. Not ever. You will hear him say, rather, women, willingly do this. Willingly lay aside your rights, your abilities, your skills, that you might be like the church in your example before the world. So what does it look like then? Practically, I've already mentioned these things, but I want to mention them again. First of all, submission is humility. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, this mind that was in Christ must be in you also. 
What mind was in Christ? Humility. When you read the rest of the text, he humbles himself, taking on the form of a man, even of a servant, and serving to the cross. That is the context of submission, is humility. Not weakness, not weakness, but humility. Secondly, submitting ourselves to one another is having a servant mentality. I think of it this way, and I'm very, very, going to be very, be very blunt with you, very practical with you here, and I have to do it from my own life. When I, when I was married at 20, I was, in, not in my mind, but as looking back on it, I was one of the most arrogant men in my circle of friends. I believed that my life would play out a certain way and that I would achieve these goals that I had set from a very young child, 14, 15 years old. Even before I came to Christ, I had goals that I wanted to attain. And those goals were all about being a pastor and a preacher. I wanted that like other men want to be the CEO of a company. It was me-centered. It had nothing to do with Christ nor His church. It had to do with me. I carried that into my marriage. And I continued to live with my wife as an arrogant man. In every regard, it was about me and my wants. Whether that was in intimacy, in the sexual relationship, or whether that was in her keeping the house a certain way, or cooking the food a certain way, or whatever, you name it. Me having time to go and do what I wanted to do and her to stay away. Me having my friends doing my ministry on campus. It was about me. I was an arrogant man when I was married, first married. And God has systematically humbled me. I'm still struggle with arrogance. But I have come a long way in the journey. And this is how he did it. My life has not been what I thought it would be. I thought success would come in the form of bigger churches. More recognition, more personal acclaim. And in every way, God has put me in a place to where I would have to admit those goals are humanly un unattainable and now I'm dead to them anyway I'm no longer in the convention that I would have told you I would have been in in the Southern Baptist Convention there's no ladder to climb for me in the ministry if there is I don't know where it is I've been humbled through that part of my humbling came from being a terrible husband Everything I said I didn't want to be, I was. I'm not going to be like my dad, who was a coward and left our family. And yet, in my own heart, there were days where I said, I'm going to leave. I'm no better than he is. I'm not going to be like my adopted dad, who's got his own sin. And then I played out his sin 
in my life. So I failed as a pastor. That, that dream died in my mind, and I was failing as a husband. And I failed in the sense and was humbled in the sense of the church. Because, see, I thought I could get a church to do anything I wanted them to do. And then in 2003, God said, you can't make people do what you think they're supposed to do. And I had a wife and a small child. Hannah Grace was a baby. And I was in master's school. I almost finished with my master's degree. And I was working for a moving company. And it was the best two years of my life. In many ways, it saved me. God used it to save me. Because he said, son, if you will be a pastor and under-shepherd, you will be a servant. If you're not a servant, you won't be a good shepherd. So he put me in the role of being a servant. I carried people's boxes and their furniture. Nobody knew who I was. Nobody cared. About two weeks in, I wish Barry was here, he'd be smiling. About two weeks in, I don't mean this as a pejoratively. To, I love the men I work with. But about two weeks in, I really started having to deal with the fact that it bothered me that the assumption of every customer I showed up on their doorstep was that I was uneducated, that I had an IQ of about 70, and they were doing me a favor to hand me $5 at the end of the day. And the whole time, God was saying, you want to be the best of husbands? Here's your school to learn it. You want to be a pastor that I am proud of and thankful for? Here's your school. Learn it. In many ways, it's the best two years I ever lived. Because it humbled me. It taught me what true service looks like. It changed my mindset. I don't care if you greet people at Walmart for a living or flip a burger at McDonald's. If you do it in an attitude of submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and love for your fellow man, you bring a witness to the gospel. So men who are here, hey, and you say, I've never went to college and, and I don't hold some big job and I'm, I'm blue collar. You have an awesome opportunity. You have a great opportunity. Men who have attained all those worldly degrees, you have a great opportunity to lay that aside and serve the people that work for you. Work for them. Submit yourself to them. And we all have the school of marriage family even if you're single you may not ever get married marriage is not ultimate we'll get to that in the sermon series marriage is not ultimate you may never get married but submit yourself as a single person to the married people of the church submit yourself to them and learn from them and teach them 
and picture the gospel to them and pray for them. You have great value in the kingdom of God through submission to one another. Whether it be discipleship or learning the hard knocks of life, we must have the attitude that for the sake of Christ, nothing is beneath me. Everything is before me. We must have the mentality and the gratitude of Elizabeth Elliot, who spent her adult years serving the very people who murdered her husband, the Akas. That's submission to another, played out in real terms, and shared the gospel with them until they were converted and sang hymns and psalms and spiritual songs to Christ in worship and reverence to Him for what her life had become. That's beautiful. That's the picture of Ephesians 5, 21. Finally, mutual submission is done in the context of submission to Christ. It does no good to try to live this out outside of Christ. Number one, you will fail. Number two, even if you succeed in a worldly way, you will fail before God. You must first be submitted to Christ. That's what the passage says. We're to submit to one another, not for the sake of submission, not for the sake of one another, but out of reverence for Christ, out of fear of the Lord, fear of Christ. Submit to, no, to, to one another because Christ is your Lord. Submit to one another because Christ is coming. He's coming again. And he will find the servants. Submit to one another because Christ is worth it. That's what Paul's saying. Christ is worth it. Picture him to the world in this way because Christ himself is worth it. And so as we move into the passage on marriage, let's keep this in our forefront. Let's keep this in our minds. Let's keep this in our hearts. Let's deal with our sin. Submitting ourselves to one another in that way. You know, there's no better way to end a ser any sermon than through communion. But a service like this should end this way. It should end this way. Because listen, in the supper, we are given the opportunity to remember the one who submitted himself to his father and to his church. Who, though he had the right as the king of the universe to lord over everyone, he lorded over no one and served us all. So we have the awesome opportunity to remember him in this. And we have the great opportunity to meet with him. That's what communion means. Meet with him. Fellowship with him in the supper. He has instituted a means of grace for his people, and that means one of them is communion. It is a real pathway into fuller relationship with Jesus Christ. It means nothing to you if you are not in Christ, and it means everything to you if you are in Christ. Let that sink in. Why do we not ask, or why do we ask unbelievers not to come to the table? Because not... I mean, it's, not, it's really bigger than you. 
The reason we tell you if you're lost not to take the supper is because it's meaningless to you. It really is. It just doesn't have any impact. has no purpose. Okay? And so when we bar, when we guard the table and we fence it, as the church has said, when we fence the table, which means to tell some they can't come, it serves two purposes. First of all, it protects you because God takes this seriously. It protects you from coming and offering un, uh, un, unfaithful fire on the altar of God like the sons of Moses. And secondly, it's meaningless to you. It really is. And so, if you're lost, we just say simply, don't come. But if you're saved, this is our opportunity to express to Christ our 